0: Hello, and welcome to Scana Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual in this episode, we will provide summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. I'm Dr. Sharon Joe.
1: And I am Andrey Komarakov, and this week we will discuss Google Sheets' new AI autofill, NLP benchmarking, some issues with hospitals' AI tools, and some fun applications of AI to plays and helping astronauts. So let's dive straight in with our first application news. Uh, this is titled Google Sheets Formula Suggestions Are Like Autofill for Math. So this just came out, I think, uh, recently, where Google has announced kind of quietly that Google Sheets is getting the ability to intelligently suggest formulas and functions for your spreadsheets uh, based on your data. So for instance, you know, if you have a column, Uh, If you just press enter, it can suggest to do sum or average or whatever. And it's intelligent in the sense of it will take context into account. So if you have like the column is named total, then it will say sum and so on. Uh, So, yeah, pretty interesting.
0: Honestly, it's about time. (laughs) I thought that we should have a lot of these, um, even rules-based kind of detection, uh, much earlier on, since I'm pretty sure a lot of spreadsheets are pretty boilerplate anyways. Um, But this is awesome. Uh, This is also probably a bit of a reaction uh, to OpenAI and Microsoft showing off uh, GPT-3 kind of doing the same thing uh, in a Word document, and so the very you know, close to Excel there. Um and yeah, this uh I, I hope that this uh will be useful. I imagine it will be for all the things that I've had to type formulas in for.
1: I know. Yeah, this is this is definitely something that makes a lot of sense. And given sort of trends, uh, as you said, it, it kind of is about time. Uh, there have been some similar things in terms of like series, autocomplete and so on for any Especially users. I'm sure they have an, uh, analogs, but I guess the, the interesting thing here is the intelligence bit. And right now, I think it's not quite as impressive as something like Codex. So hopefully they keep working on it and you know, improve everyone's lives who works with spreadsheets, which I would imagine is, uh, you know, maybe even more useful than improving uh, code production.
0: (laughs) And what's great is that you can easily, I mean, train this model. I mean, they can because they have all the data and it executes, right? So (laughs) you can see it actually uh, doing the right thing before and after applying the formula if you were to, let's say, mask out some of those values. Um, so it, it seems like a straightforward thing to implement without anything kind of dicey coming out from the model. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. Warm.
1: <laughs> it seems like there me, wouldn't be any license issues and, uh, like they could make it pretty careful cause it's pretty narrow domain to not output like secret, uh, you know, uh, passwords or whatever issues with codecs we've seen.
0: And on to our next article titled, More Than 50 Robots Are Working at Singapore's High Tech Hospital. And this is actually the Changi General Hospital, CGH, in Singapore. Uh, and more than 50 members of their staff are actually robots. Uh, so they do anything from performing surgery to doing administrative work. Uh, but they've become this integral part of, uh, the hospital's workforce, which is really exciting. Um, and the best known ones are the da Vinci, uh, surgery robots, which you, uh, might have heard of that help, um, surgeons with, um, uh, doing, you know, minimally, minimally invasive surgeries. Um, but outside of that, the, de- uh, the robots are doing, you know, delivery of food or linens or, uh, cleaning, um, helping with maintenance, helping with patient rehabilitation, helping patients get back into bed um, and also being a social partner with patients. And I I find that really, really interesting. Um, There are some, I think, serious patient outcomes coming, uh, uh, being seen in the reduction of sedatives because a lot of older patients get a robot companion and that makes them a lot happier, um, which is exciting to see.
1: I totally agree. I think this is uh, one of the most exciting uh, areas in robotics that I don't think many people are aware of, but it is kind of has been emerging for a while. And it's very uh, kind of it makes a lot of sense, right? There's no worry here of replacing jobs because there's not enough people to get around to it anyway. And these robots are really fulfilling kind of the things that people takes up people's times and um, robots could do. So like delivery, you know, these are things that nurses currently have to do, but they spend their time on better things as i think we discussed in the past and these social robots uh, which uh, are like you know the paro uh, little animal i think seal and so on again is taking the role of uh, elderly care professionals who there's also a shortage there with you know aging populations in singapore and el- elsewhere and they have been shown as you said to really have impressive outcomes So, yeah, I think this is a great trend. And I'm glad this article is highlighting that. And I do think it's impressive that, you know, in this one thousand bed hospital, there are this many robots because I did not think there was this much adoption. So it's cool to see that some hospitals are really pushing for it.
0: Yeah, and I think this is, you know, much of it is very cultural, like you mentioned, it's not controversial in any way because they don't have enough staff. So they need uh, robots. So no one's job is really being replaced in Singapore and due to the you know, elderly population, which is known as "quote unquote" the three tsunamis, uh, which basically is meant. You know, basically means the aging population is a huge mess. One tsunami, the shrinking workforce uh, is causing another tsunami, and the increase in chronic disease overall uh, in healthcare is the third tsunami in in uh, medicine. So this is just very important for them to have something like this, uh, and I think. There has been increased demand in other countries, uh, such as Denmark, where, you know, that kind of disparity is also seen between, you know, the the workforce that is shrinking, but the aging population and need for uh, health care that is that is increasing.
1: Yeah, I'd be also interested to take a look at how this is uh, happening in Japan, where um, I think many people are aware there is an aging population and of course they're quite fond of robots. I wonder how uh, common this is there. And onto our research section where we highlight some news with respect to AI research. Uh, First up, we have the blog post, Challenges and Opportunities in NLP Benchmarking by Sebastian Bruder. So this is, uh, you know, as, as the title says, all about kind of the current state of NLP benchmarking and where we can go in the future, given where we are now. And it's quite a detailed look at kind of the state of things. So it goes over what is a benchmark, a brief history, and then a bunch of things for kind of where we could improve in terms of metrics, downstream use cases, fine grained evaluation. It has many recommendations. It is a very good kind of overview survey and definitely an interesting read for anyone who wants to get a picture. And I think even for non researchers, this is a good way to sort of get caught up to the state of things in terms of kind of what, one of the big challenges and trends in AI.
0: Yeah, and overall, um, I will say, you know, the blog post does mention a lot of the benchmarks that we have now are, you know, outdated. They're just being, we're getting superhuman, quote unquote, performance uh, immediately. Uh, but I'd just like to note that um, we're we're going to see that on old benchmarks all the time. Uh, benchmarks will necessarily need to continually improve. I mean, I mean, I I I did my thesis on this, so just reflecting a bit, it's just the nature of benchmarks for that to happen. Uh, Because if they're too hard, let's say the human performance is actually too, too hard, then we can't optimize for them. We essentially have no gradient, right? We have no way of knowing like how to make that better. Uh, So actually having benchmarks where They're just in that sweet spot of we see improvement, but it's not quite surpassing the limits of that benchmark is that sweet spot. And I think right now we're kind of struggling with finding the next set of benchmarks that will take us through the next um, areas of research. Uh, But it'll be really interesting to to see to see where things go there.
1: Yeah, that's a a fair point. And I think uh, it's also worth noting that this blog post is specific to NLP, where I think this is a bit more notable. Uh, I think on my computer vision, in computer vision, there's now a lot of these more niche tasks, I think, like few shot learning and, you know, compositional learning and a lot of these different things. And those are not being kind of, uh, you know, solved, so to speak, as fast, whereas in uh, natural language processing, there's been an effort to, you know, have uh, benchmarks that sort of evaluate general sort of language skill. And that's been really the challenge with things like squad uh, and glue being really solved. And the point being made here is that despite these uh, benchmarks being beaten and beaten in a sense of like the performance exceeds human performance uh, very quickly, you know, that doesn't mean that the uh, AI models actually can do these tasks. So another point here is that so far the design doesn't seem to work uh, in terms of, you know, being, as you said, a good enough challenge to really test the skills as intended. And so I think it, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, kind of, the survey on how to design a benchmark and, uh, you know, yeah, what people are thinking as far as next steps.
0: And on to our next article uh, Google Brain uncovers representation structure differences between CNNs and vision transformers. Uh, and this is about the uh, paper Do Vision Transformers See Like Convolutional Neural Networks? All right, so vision transformers are essentially transformers uh, that are being used for vision tasks, so computer vision. Um, and prior to using these, uh, prior to transformers really taking over the world and attention being all you need, uh, convolutional neural networks, CNNs, uh, were mainly used uh, for computer vision. And this paper kind of goes, uh, drops down and lets us see, you know, how are these two different model architectures, how are they different and how, how can we visualize that? Can we see how they compute representations differently um, and and, and what, what is going on and does that make sense? Um, and I think uh, one striking thing is that the visual transformers uh, compute representations um, Uh, differently than, you know, a ResNet, which is, you know, a very basic CNN. Um, And visual transformers actually more strongly propagate their representations between lower and higher layers versus ResNets. Um, and I think what's interesting there is it's not super surprising to me because um, a visual transformer is is looking at attention at every single layer and it's kind of honing in on uh, what it's trying to look at uh, versus with convolutional neural networks you're you're very much layering and aggregating disparate information for salient features as you go along. Um, yeah what are your thoughts on this Andre?
1: Yeah, I, I found this pretty interesting. Some of the results are uh, not very surprising, as you said. So for instance in the early layers uh, closer to the input, there's more global uh, information than Resnets which makes sense due to the design transformers. some of them are pretty you know interesting for sure, like the fact that we representations in the layers of transformers um, between low and uh, higher layers are similar, because um, kind of the traditional understanding of deep neural nets has been that you create this sort of um, you know successively more abstract representation. So at the early layers, you have circles and lines and whatever. And then in the middle layers, you have more complex shapes. Uh, and then sort of at the later layers, you have concepts like dog and cat and whatever. Uh, so, that's been kind of a common wisdom. And it looks like uh, with Transformers, that's not quite so much the case, which is curious. And uh, yeah, in general, I think this is a very good type of paper, which we don't see quite enough in AI, a sort of an empirical study and really an investigation that leads to deeper understanding rather than better performance per se. And I always love seeing these kinds of papers,
0: right? And I think it's uh, quite interesting to note these very structural differences in the two different architectures, because then it really just makes you think, okay, these are different models. You know, these are different architectures. They are doing very different things to complete the same task. Because um, I think sometimes, oh, there's look at this iterative, uh, basically small little contribution that's not really making a drastic change. I think this is very much highlighting, this is a really drastic change in our architecture. It's doing something different um, when it's trying to learn uh, visual perception.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting how, you know, so far CNNs uh, in the 90s were very well um, kind of um, motivated by human perception when they came out actually in the 80s. Whereas I think transformers are a bit more of a sort of just discovery that happened. You know, there wasn't it was just sort of an iteration ideas that existed for a while, especially in NLP. And so I, I guess there would be some hope that if we do more of these kind of studies, you know, what is the next transformer? What is the next thing to really be a big discovery in AI? Maybe we can have... A more principled way to figure that out and find this next architecture if you have a deeper understanding on how these ones work and what you know possibly are their deficiencies and, and strengths. And uh, enough on that. Hopefully, we didn't get too technical for any non AI researchers, but you know, uh, it's it's kind of a fun paper, and sometimes we like to geek out. Next, we have our uh, articles dealing with ethics and society and concerns about AI. And the first one here is titled "Flying in the Dark: Hospital AI Tools Aren't Well Documented," and this is by the Stanford Human Centered AI Institute. So this is about a new study titled low adherence to existing model reporting guidelines, but commonly used clinical prediction models. And so researchers at Stanford uh, document that, as the title says, that, uh, you know, the documentation for a dozen AI models for clinical decision making for all of them in commercial use uh, and compared to, uh, you know, 15 different sets of guidelines, they found that the uh, guidelines were not followed very well for the documentation. Some cases, you know, more badly than others. But in general, you know, none of them were quite stellar. So interesting for sure. Uh, What do you think about this, Sharon?
0: I think what's interesting is that they uh, were looking at models specifically developed by Epic, uh, which is uh, one of the leading uh, providers of EMRs or uh, electronic medical records. Uh, so they're, you know, a multi-billion dollar company and just in in a large percentage of hospital systems. Uh, and they are the closest system to de- essentially to deployment right of these models, of these AI models, because they can, they can see all that patient data. They can uh, very much integrate with the workflow of the doctor uh, and and administration at the hospital. Uh, so I think what's really interesting is that this group of researchers looked specifically at uh, Epic Systems uh, AI, AI models. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, and I wonder why. Maybe that's just because they're leading provider and their things are deployed. Where I think a lot of them, a lot of tools are not in commercial use, and I, I would presume also these AI models are maybe not quite cutting edge in terms of research. But still, uh, you know, this is also setting a good uh, precedent for future deployment in terms of you know you know people keeping an eye out. And it's interesting that um, they found that, uh, you know, some guidelines were followed, but things were especially weak on documenting evidence that models are fair, reliable and useful. And that's we've often discussed that, you know, we found evidence that models were biased or then were not actually useful or reliable, so that seems like very crucial for deploying new AI tools and it's interesting that this uh, this evidence exists that the combination there is lacking.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important that they uh, looked at Epic's models because they are closer to deployment, right, and I think they would think about or we would expect them to think about these things a little bit more, uh, these guidelines much more than a research paper, say, uh, written by mainly AI researchers. Uh, but uh, I think this illuminates. You know, here are some of the shortcomings we still have, um, and here are here here's what's needed for us to get a little bit more comfortable with deploying them. Um, that said, I'm very curious uh, if we were to backtrack a couple articles ago uh, what Singapore <laughs> thinks about a lot of these things in their robots and whether they use AI and how, how they've been thinking through some of that, because they seem to have seen a decent amount of success uh, with, <laughs> with robots and AI.
1: Yeah, I think it's always, uh, you know, with AI models, you know, for, for instance, disease uh, diagnosis. Or other applications we've seen, you know, there's always you need to take risk into account. So with a lot of robots, aside from Da Vinci for surgery, which is very well established, you know, I think delivery is something where it's a little less high risk, and robots are designed to sort of be pretty slow and easy to avoid. Whereas um, a lot of these AI tools in medicine are maybe somewhere where bias is more likely and you really need to be more careful. And I found it interesting, you know, reflecting on our origin at Stanford, that this is from the Stanford Human Centered AI Institute, which kind of came out. It was a little ambiguous why it's needed, but it's it's interesting to see these sorts of studies coming out of there. And, you know, in some case, in some sense, I think. It um, demonstrates the usefulness of this institute in terms of focusing more on ensuring that AI is being used in sort of the correct ways uh, out in society, which maybe industry wouldn't be as motivated to do, especially not to sort of overview study.
0: And on to our next article, Toyota pauses Paralympics self-driving buses after one hits visually impaired athlete. All right. So as the article title suggests, uh, Toyota uh, had the, the self-driving buses for the Paralympics, uh, but one of them did unfortunately hit uh, one of the athletes who was visually impaired. Uh, and Toyota has issued an apology for you know their overconfidence, quote unquote, um, of the self-driving bus. Uh, and uh, it would uh, definitely suspended service temporarily right now, um, the Japanese athlete uh, who was visually impaired and kind of run over will actually be unable to compete um, in his uh, his event this weekend. Um, So that that's really, really unfortunate. Um, And this has mainly been uh, showcased um, for you know, (laughs) for as part of its as part of Toyota's sponsorship um, of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, you know, kind of disappointing for sure, because we sort of like, uh, you know, you would think that these are lower stakes and easier cases for self-driving buses because it's really just uh, ferrying people. But then this happens. It's interesting to me that Tokyo police said that there were vehicle operators who said that they were aware that a person was there, but thought uh, this person would realize that a bus was coming and stop cr- crossing the street, which is a little strange, I guess. And um, yeah, and luckily, the person isn't too injured. I think he is recovering well, but kind of a demonstration of how far we are from really using these sorts of things in a, in a truly reliable way. Yeah.
0: And the athlete himself uh, is not actually showing any outrage, which I guess stereotypically an American athlete would. <laughs> he, uh, his coach actually said, quote, he wanted to take good care of himself. We feel regret, but I think he is the most disappointed.
1: Yeah. uh, So kind of a sad story, but, you know, (laughs) hopefully it's a good lesson that you need to really be more careful with these sorts of things. But to lighten the mood, we have our final set of articles in the fun category, starting with our first one from the Guardian rise of the Robodrama. drama. Uh, Young Vic creates new play using AI. So uh, Young Vic is this big theater and it has a new show titled AI that explores how AI can be used uh, for a play. And it's, it's sort of weird. It's not really a play per se. Uh, it's this interesting format where you see the production staff, the writers and producers of the play sort of interacting with GPT-free in real time in front of the audience and trying to write a play interactively. So it's, you know, you see it coming together live and then it's the end of the evening they performed this this brand new play that they developed using gpu free so not what i would have expected and i don't know it sounds pretty intriguing to me i think i would have wanted to see it uh what do you think sharon
0: yeah, that sounds really fun to to watch and it reminds me of, you know, a lot of people have been using GPT-3 for great artistic applications such as this one. Um, it reminds me of uh, I met one of the Yes Theory guys and he told me that they use GPT-3 to uh, determine what their next adventure should be and just basically um, uh, narrate their next adventure.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. I think this is I was a little skeptical when I saw the headline, uh, expecting sort of some pretty lame thing. But I think this is sort of precisely a very smart and appropriate use of GPT-3, where it's it's this back and forth and they get these raw ideas from GPT-3, but then... Ultimately, it is the people that mold it and combine it and create a play. So they sort of get ideas and brainstorm these uh, high level things. And GPT-3 did offer some fun things about, you know, star-crossed love and uh, different sort of apocalyptic things. And then apparently, you know, the final play was... um, a play about a great collision in which humans are now beast men who have a passing resemblance to Morlocks in the time machine. So yeah, I think this is kind of a good example of how to do it right. And it's interesting that the play also kind of was there to show the audience how to interact with AI and what AI can do and wherever human element is needed.
0: And onto our last article, Astro B will find astronauts lost socks. All right. So at some point in the future, uh, NASA wants to build this permanent space station called Gateway, um, which will be in orbit around the moon. And they expect Gateway to be empty a lot of the time, but they want it to be a welcoming space when astronauts do arrive um, and They uh, have a project um, for autonomous systems already um, on board space stations uh, to work with autonomous or semi-autonomous robots and manage any situations that require physical intervention. And um, one such robot is the Astro B robot um and Astro B robot um during their uh i guess current experimentation um is this small cube shaped robot it looks it looks pretty cute and it looks pretty futuristic actually uh so i do encourage you to go check out uh, it's, uh what it looks like visually um but it's uh Basically, one of its jobs is to navigate the station um, and look for any vents um, used for cabin air circulation. And it uses computer vision to automatically detect uh, anything that might be blocking the vent and Um, In the example here, it's an astronaut sock. um, And this is actually represented by a printed image of a sock, not an actual sock um, to test the uh, computer vision algorithm. But it looks pretty sci-fi in the future.
1: Yeah, for sure. It looks pretty sci-fi. And I think the article also notes that, uh, you know, these ones are little cubes, so they can't really, uh, you know, use arms for stuff per se. But there will be also other robots that NASA has developed that could maybe do that instead. So it's, it is pretty sci-fi to think, you know, there will be a bunch of autonomous robots or semi-autonomous robots on the space station while the humans are away <laughs> doing the stuff that's needed to keep it running. And uh, yeah, that's pretty crazy and and certainly exciting. And uh, I guess I didn't realize, you know, we had these ambitions of this uh, (laughs) whatever space station in orbit around the moon. Uh, (laughs) You know, that's pretty, pretty interesting. And I wonder what is the timeline for all of this?
0: That may be hard to tell you <laughs> now, they can probably tell you the intended uh, timeline, but exact timelines are always unknown until they actually happen.
1: But yeah, these robots are a little bit cute. They are in a compact form factor and they look like they have these two little eyes and they're just cubes. So they have a little bit of a wally kind of aesthetic, I guess. Mm, they do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with that, that's it for us this episode. If you've enjoyed our discussions of these stories, be sure to share and review the podcast. We'd appreciate it a ton.